Do you wonder if you get the most bang for your buck from your caffeine supplementation? Could you do better by adjusting the dose or the timing? And how would you know whether you need to do this or not? Over the last decade, there's been a rise in the research into genetic testing, and that started to look at this in the context of caffeine for athletes. And as it turns out, some of us are fast metabolizers, moderate metabolizers, or slow metabolizers of caffeine. And this may help explain why some people get more benefit from their caffeine than others when taking sort of a standard dose and timing of their caffeine supplements. In today's episode, we're looking at a newly published meta-analysis, which looks at all the studies on genetic testing and caffeine supplementation to find out if genetics really do matter. Our guests, Gabrielle Barreto and Dr. Brian Saunders from the University of Sao Paulo in Brazil conducted this research, and they're here to tell you whether genetics matter, if it's worth getting a genetic test, and what the results mean for how you take caffeine around exercise. Hello and welcome to The Long Munch, the nutrition podcast for runners, cyclists and triathletes. I'm Alan McCubbin. And I'm Steph Gaskell. We're both accredited sports dietitians based in Melbourne and combined have over 30 years experience working with runners, cyclists and triathletes to help them stay healthy and optimise their performance from complete beginners through to professional and Olympic athletes. Each episode, we take a deep dive into the most common nutrition questions that runners, cyclists and triathletes ask. Sort of stuff you're talking about out on your run or ride, in the coffee shop afterwards, or jumping online to find answers for. So we'll take that question, break it down, and invite a guest expert or athlete to add their perspective. Today, it's episode 66, Should I Change My Caffeine Use Based on My Genetics, with our special guests, Gabrielle Barreto and Dr. Brian Saunders. Now, you may notice from the end of our last episode that we were going to discuss double session days and how to fuel for those, but we've decided to hold that over to our next episode because this new study from Gabrielle and Brian has just been published last week, and we really want to have a look at this while it's a hot topic and while it's still fresh in people's minds. So if you want to know how to get the most out of your supplementation with caffeine for sport, stick around and you'll find the answers. But before we get to Gabrielle and Brian, if you have a question that you would like answered on the podcast, you can find us on social media at The Long Munch on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. And remember also that there's now 65 previous questions we've already answered. So if you're new to the podcast, welcome. You might like to check out the back catalogue to see if there's something there that will be helpful to you. Most podcast apps only show you the last few episodes, but if you click back, you'll find the rest of them there going back to November 2020. Al, I think you've got a, a couple of updates for us. Yeah, well, we've got this Warside Dunes Australia conference happening up in Queensland as we speak, actually, on the Sunshine Coast. Unfortunately, neither of us could make it this year, Steph, due to various reasons. I think it's probably the first time that either of us have missed it mm. as well, which is a bit sad. I'm technically there as a virtual registration, so which means I get to watch bits and pieces of it online, but not the whole thing, and presenting a study as well, but that is done uh, virtually. So I recorded that last week and that will get played at the conference. But yeah, there's there's nine research studies being presented by the, the Monash Uni research team that we're a part of. And that looks at a whole range of areas around nutrition and gut issues, hydration, sodium supplementation, and pre-exercise hyperhydration as well. So yeah, it's a bit happening. Unfortunately, we're a little bit out of the loop this year, Steph, but mm -hmm. that's life. 
That's life. That's life. And also an update on your recent paper. Yeah, so this is the the study that we've been talking about for a couple of years now on the podcast to trying to recruit people for, but it's all finished now. This is a study where we got people running for five hours, either taking sodium supplementation or not. And that's been accepted actually into the International Journal of Sports Physiology and Performance. So that should be available online sometime in the next few weeks, I think, which is exciting. It's very exciting because it, it means that it was worth me running on a treadmill for five hours for you hour so we That's can right. keep our, our friendship going. Yes. Uh, <laughs> and can you tell us a bit about today's guest hour? Yeah, sure can. So Dr. Brian Saunders is from the University of Sao Paulo in Brazil, and he was here on the podcast back in August 2022, actually, on episode 43A talking about does creatine have a role in endurance sports. So he's someone who's done a lot of research around supplements and he's got a a keen interest in endurance sports. He's a bit of a cyclist himself as well. Gabriel Barreto is completing his PhD under Brian's supervision at the moment and he's looking at the area of caffeine supplementation, the optimal dose and timing. And so this bit of work that we're talking about today, this meta-analysis on the effect of genetic variations comes from Gabriel's PhD research. And he's particularly talking about this genetic variation in what's called the cytochrome P451A2 enzyme, which is shortened to CYP1A2. <laughs> You've probably never heard of it, but we'll talk a bit about it and, and what the implications of that are as we go through. But it is something you can actually go and get a genetic test for, and we'll discuss with Gabriel and Brian whether they think that's worthwhile or, or recommended or not. But the findings from their work really provide some great insights into whether the dose and timing of caffeine should be different depending on your genetics and then obviously whether it is worth then getting a genetic test done. So we don't normally sort of jump on a, a new newly published paper, but I think this one had some really practical implications and being a meta-analysis, it's pulled together all the studies previously done on a topic and kind of summarised it really nicely. So we thought it was a, a great chance to have a look at it while it's, while it's just hot off the press. Mm, yeah, yeah. And I'm um, loaded up with caffeine because I like to consider myself a, a fast metabolizer. So I'm, I'm eager to learn if um, that's a, a good thing or not. So let's uh, jump onto it. Yep, let's do it. Welcome back to The Long Munch, Brian Saunders, and welcome to The Long Munch, Gabriel Barreto. How are you both doing? Thanks a lot. Glad to be back. I didn't do such a bad job then if you've uh, invited me back. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, people love that creatine episode, by the way. Nice to hear. <laughs> and uh, I'm Gabriel. I'm, it's really good to be on board. Uh, thanks for inviting me, actually. Uh, yeah. I suggested that I will join in. It's, uh, it's a pleasure. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. And obviously, this is a, a big bit of work that, that you were involved with. And we we're just talking off air before, you know, with research, often you do this work. And then by the time it gets published, it can be a year or more later. And then you've got to kind of remember all the work that you've kind of forgotten in the meantime to talk about it when it gets finally published. Oh, yeah, yeah, I know. But although it was a long, long work, we got uh, some comments from the reviewers like, what, two months ago. So we had like some time to pick it up and uh, rewrite a few things. But yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Cool. All right. Well, as I said, this is only our second ever double guest episode. So we'll see how it goes. Hopefully not too chaotic, but we'll we'll start with you, Brian. So last time you were on the podcast, as we said before, you were discussing creatine for endurance athletes. And you mentioned at that time that, you know, you are involved in research in a variety of different supplements. And obviously caffeine is one of those. So 
before we get into, I guess, the main topic of today, which is kind of those genetic aspects and this this new review paper that you guys have done, can you describe briefly, I guess, our traditional view of caffeine in terms of performance? So what has been sort of the recommended you know, dose of caffeine, the timing of caffeine around exercise, does that matter or not? And does you know the way we give caffeine in terms of whether it's in coffee or tablets or gels or gum or that kind of thing, like how does that impact things? So where, where are we kind of at if we don't include this kind of genetic aspect to it? Yeah, of course. I think there's a, a few things to unpick. So I'll, I'll as you mm. said, try to be as brief as, as possible. So I think to start with, the general scientific consensus is certainly that caffeine is considered an effective supplement for exercise performance. And that's across a wide range of exercise types and modalities. So sprint-based activity, kind of short duration, anaerobic, more aerobic endurance-based activity, strength-based activity, you know, you name it, sort of, it seems to work. It's almost, you know, one of those supplements that is it's a bit too, almost too good to be true. There's evidence for, you know, cycling type activity, running, rowing, resistance exercise, team sports. Again, you name it, there's probably a study showing that it can improve performance during that kind of activity. How much caffeine? So the recommended dose in the literature is around or between three and six milligrams per kilogram of body mass. So we generally, at least in, in, in scientific research, we give it relative to body mass. But, you know, that's maybe between about 200 to 400 milligrams for most people. OK, so there is some data that less than that can be effective. And similarly, more can be uh, effective as well. But maybe the issue with more is that you might encounter a few more side effects, you know, jitters, anxiety, tachycardia, which might not help your performance so much. Um, thinking about the when, uh, most studies would probably provide it about one hour prior to starting exercise, and that's probably a good place to start. Caffeine seems to peak around one to two hours in our system after ingesting it, and that depends a little bit on the dose, a little bit on the form. But it'll also take a few hours to be eliminated. So you can expect those effects to last for a little while as well. And then form capsules, I think, is, is generally what I recommend. I think that's a great way to start again, because generally, you know exactly how much caffeine you're getting. You know, a, a, again, if you're going for a 200 milligram dose, a lot of companies might sell a capsule capsules containing 200 milligrams. So bang, you're done. Other forms such as gels, chewing gum, tablets, they're fine as well. They, they seem to work. There's evidence for them. But you might have to modify optimal timing, especially with caffeine chewing gum. Some of Gabriel's work actually showed that the performance enhancing effects with caffeine in gum quicker because there seems to be uptake in the mouth. And so you could probably take that 15 minutes pre-exercise. And you mentioned coffee. I think coffee is another great source of caffeine for those who prefer a coffee-free pre-exercise. But bear in mind, you don't know how much you're getting. You know, you can have an espresso, you can have a big cup of coffee. There's lots of good data out there from fantastic researchers in Australia, led by Ben Desbrow, showing that there's so much variation. You know, you really don't know if you're getting 80 milligrams or 400 milligrams. Sometimes the difference is huge. So I guess, you know, it all seems to work. Different exercise types, different doses an hour or two before exercise but you know you, 
the choice is endless. It, again, it almost seems too good to be true. And you tend to have, like with our audience being endurance athletes and so out there for a long period of time, they will tend to kind of stagger the intake or like, you know, sort of take it multiple times during an event. We don't really have any data to say like a particular protocol, like, you know, how you're saying, I'll take it about an hour before and then it will peak and then it will kind of die out of your system potentially, I don't know, two, three hours or so. And then the athletes will tend to, you know, probably take it, take it again. Any kind of recommendations or comments on that? Well, the half-life is quite long, generally three to nine hours of the time it takes to eliminate half of, of the dose you've ingested. But there, there, there are some studies that have tried to look into that, giving sort of smaller doses at intervals throughout endurance versus maybe that entire dose, total dose at the start, without a difference between them. So it kind of does suggest that you can fraction the dose if you want throughout, but potentially taking it before might be just as good. But I'm kind of thinking, I can't remember the exact duration of that study, of the exercise in that study. If you're looking at over six hours, then maybe you might want to look at maybe fractioning a dose of maybe sort of one to two milligrams per kilo, kilogram of body mass every couple of hours, maybe something like that. If you're really going past that, maybe into the ultra marathon, ultra endurance kind of activity. Cool. Okay, so this area of genetics and caffeine is one that certainly I've been aware of for about six or seven years now. I think the first time I sort of became aware of it was actually the Sports Dietitians Australia conference in 2017, where there was a presentation about it. But how long has this kind of influence of genetics that we're talking about today sort of been on your radar? Not much longer than you, really, I think. I think the the first study that I can remember reading, and I, and I don't remember if I read it, you know, just as it came out was from Chris Womack as, as lead author, looking at caffeine on 40 kilometer time trial performance. And that study came out in 2012, so about 11 years ago now. And I can remember thinking, oh, well, this is, this is interesting. I always thought sort of caffeine sort of worked across the board, but this kind of suggests that maybe not. But I didn't really sort of think much of it because I wasn't really researching caffeine at that time. But then a few years later, you know, we, we kind of picked up interest when we started playing around with caffeine and in, in, in studies in our lab. And we ourselves kind of showed some differences in the responses to caffeine supplementation. So we thought, well, let's see what's out there, what, what's of potentially interest or what's potentially influencing this response. And by then, you know, a few more studies had come out and this was quickly becoming a, a hot topic. So. I think sort of it, we we as a group have been kind of looking into it the last six, seven years. And about 10 years ago was when I fir it first really came upon my radar. Yeah, cool. And, and I think with supplements, you often hear kind of this term when people talk about supplement research of kind of like responders and non-responders. And, and just for listeners, that sort of means that, you know, responders are people that get the benefit from the supplement and the non-responders are people who don't because generally in most studies you see a bit of both you know not everyone gets the same benefit from whatever the intervention is whether it's caffeine or or something else is that kind of the i guess the context where this sort of genetic stuff came into the picture is to try and understand is genetics the reason that you have or or you know can explain the responders versus the non-responders exactly Exactly. I think although 
the scientific literature has gotten a bit better, but sometimes we look at it too black and white and, and show, you know, on one day, oh, somebody improved with caffeine or they didn't improve. And we label people as a responder, non-responder. It's far more complex than that. And, and, mm. and if we test them only once, we don't know if they never respond or not. You know, it, we don't know how consistent that response is and whether they really don't respond all the time or not. But when you start to delve into that and look at and maybe separate according to groups, uh, you know, different genotypes or other factors like habitual consumption of caffeine, which is a, is a topic you guys have previously covered here, thinking about withdrawal, then the literature suddenly suggests, well, maybe some groups are the ones that maybe are more likely to respond or less likely to respond. And again, the last few years, genetics has certainly been purported to be one of those factors that might enhance or decrease a person's likelihood of gaining a benefit from caffeine. Yep. Cool. All right. So Gabriel, we'll come to you now. Can you explain for the listeners, I guess, when we're talking about genetic differences in the context of caffeine and obviously, you know, this work that you guys have recently published, what are these genetic differences and how have they been suggested to alter maybe the way our bodies respond to or, or use caffeine? Yeah, sure. Well, just to give listeners some context, actually, just think of genes as recipes for proteins that have function in our body. Maybe it could be a receptor, maybe it could be well, the site where caffeine may, does its effect. In this specific case, we investigate in our lab is the gene that expresses this enzyme that transforms caffeine into other more, excret more excretable metabolites. And in this specific genotype, what happens is we have some people that are express this enzyme a bit more. Some people have this recipe that makes them express this enzyme a bit less. And you create like three types of, we call it phenotypes, but it's three types of distinguished people, right? You have the fast metabolizers, we have the intermediate metabolizers and the slow metabolizers. And when you think of it for the first time, you think, well, if you're a fast metabolizer, you get rid of caffeine faster, your half-life, your caffeine half-life reduces in these individual individuals. So maybe it'll have a, a smaller effect, but in fact, when caffeine is transformed into these other metabolites, these, some of them, some of these other metabolites, they are more potent than caffeine itself. So this is the main thing that we think that might affect performance in between these, these three genotypes. Of course, this is not the only genotype that might affect, just like any other human trait, other genes might be, be interacting with this specific difference. Right, so these small differences in genes, we call them polymorphisms, which is just a small difference in the recipe that might create that, that, that specific protein, that enzyme in this case. Yeah, okay. And so, as you said, there's, there's kind of three different variants, I guess, that, that people have in this particular gene. And, and as you said before, like obviously, you know, one gene is not always going to be the be-all and end-all in a lot of things in terms of how it sort of plays out biologically often it's more than one gene but is there a like there's those three different variants in this particular case are they equally common or is is one kind of quite rare and the other two are much more common yeah the the two most common are the fast and the intermediate metabolizers they are 45 percent of the population each and we have the slow metabolizers which even in the research is really difficult to find they're 10 percent of the population and it's usually the biggest problem in research in this specific genotype in caffeine. They're very rare and difficult to find in the population. So 
most of the time we're struggling to find those those low metabolizers in the in the population. Yeah. And I guess that becomes tricky, doesn't it? Because if you're trying to compare, I guess the two extremes, the fast versus the slow, and you're finding it hard to get enough people in the slow group, then that becomes difficult from a study point of view. No, exactly. And in the logistics point of view as well, it would be awesome if we could find a thousand people, genotype everyone, find out who is a slow metabolizer, who's a, who is a fast metabolizer, and just select them to our study. And since we're just running these participants over and over, it's usually that's the distribution we find. Yeah. And that's exactly what we're trying to see. If there's a big difference between the fast and the slow, and some studies have found this big difference, and this will always be a problem in our field, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And we'll go into, you know, whether we think, you know, doing this kind of genetic testing is, is worthwhile a little bit later on. But I guess for athletes who are interested in this, you would have to go and then do a genetic test if you wanted to find out for yourself, wouldn't you? Uh, yeah, I think this is the only available way. A few colleagues of ours have uh, tried to find simpler methods. Uh, a colleague of ours from a university here in Brazil, he tried to use a questionnaire to see if people uh, respond differently and their expectations towards the effects of caffeine might be a way to really detect these genetic differences, but uh, it wasn't really as precise as he, as he would like. So this, that's the only way really to be, to do this genotyping in the, in the lab. Usually. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And, and I was just having a quick look, you know, online today, certainly here in Australia, there are companies that will do that kind of testing for you. I found one that will test it for about it's 200 Australian dollars, which is, you know, not outrageous. It's not cheap, but it's certainly not, out, not outrageous either. So it's it's certainly out there and accessible and available to people, certainly in some countries, maybe more so than others. And it seems like from when I was having a look, I don't know, Brian, if you want to comment on this, it seems like that test is often actually designed because this particular enzyme is involved in drug metabolism as well for certain medications for example and sometimes it's actually used to look at how people handle medications so it's done from a health perspective rather than purely the caffeine perspective yeah exactly exactly that i think because we're we're considering a liver enzyme that processes not only caffeine but as you as you mentioned medication it is probably one of the most well-known kind of genetic tests out there but yeah, it's 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 not cheap, and maybe two hundred Australian dollars over there is is all right. But I know that sort of over here, those those prices are probably even more inflated, and sort of the prices we've been quoted are not so accessible, particularly for the Brazilian or most of the Brazilian population as well. So, yeah. Yeah, definitely. And I guess that's one thing we always have to keep in mind with sport is that sort of equity of, of access to things, whether it's things like genetic testing or the latest fancy shoes or bikes or whatever in terms of cost and you know how that relates to participation worldwide as well. Okay, so Brian, can you tell us a bit more about this meta-analysis that you guys have just published? And so, you know, for the listeners of meta-analysis, uh, we've talked about it quite a few times on the podcast, but it kind of looks at all the studies that have been published on a topic and kind of tries to statistically analyze them together to, you know, pull pull all of those smaller data sets into a big data set and, and get some conclusions from that. But what was kind of the motivation, I guess, to do this analysis in the first place? The quick answer would be Gabrielle. That was the, the main motivation, or he was the motivator. He was very keen. But I mean, it was something we, we discussed a lot or started to discuss a lot in our, in our group. So I think 
if you've been a bit generic about it, the motivation, as always, with these kind of things is to, to, to find out the truth or get as close to the truth as possible. You know, we've, we've discussed in our group a lot. There's a lot of misinformation out there that you see, even from rep, reputable sources. But we'd seen, you know, lots of people highlighting the huge importance of this genotype or different genotypes for their response to caffeine and exercise performance. But, you know, the, the real truth is far more nuanced than that, I think. No single study is conclusive. Every study has a certain limitation. Some have greater limitations than others. And we wanted to get a little bit into the details of that because, you know, we'd, we'd been seeing these studies come out kind of slowly one by one all the while while we'd been kind of running this big, big study. So, you know, we're dying to get our hands on our data, but, you know, we're still collecting data as we speak or analyzing some, some um, blood samples as we speak. But, you know, we, we were watching these studies come out and then, you know, one study comes out and says a certain thing, you know, a certain genotype responds better and everybody jumps on the bandwagon and all of a sudden it's, it's the biggest thing and everybody should go get genetic testing. But then there's another study right next door to it where the inverted results have been shown or, you know, so we kind of wanted to delve into, you know, what does the overall picture paint? Should, you know, your listeners be concerned about genotyping for caffeine or not? And, you know, what are the huge limitations of each individual study? You know, can we take on board what the current literature says or is it heavily biased or, or, or limited by its own its own study designs? So that that was our, our main motivation. Gabrielle, before we get to the, the results, talking about the results, how many studies did you find that have actually looked at this and how back, far back did they actually go? Yeah, so we, we found 16 in total, uh, 16 peer-reviewed uh, published ones. Uh, we found uh, another thesis that hadn't been published uh, and probably won't. It's a thesis from 2013, I guess, and it probably won't be published, but 16 in total. As Brian said, the first one is Womax from 2012. And it was actually the most interesting one. It was the first one to show a difference. It's a coincidence, I guess. The first study to ever be published uh, on this actually found a difference between those genotypes. They found an effect of the fast metabolizers and he didn't see a difference in the performance with caffeine for the slow metabolizers. So that, that's the first one we found. Yeah. And were these studies that you found looking specifically at endurance performance or was it across all types of performance? And then was there enough there to actually analyze different performance types separately? Yeah, well, unfortunately, we didn't have enough to do the separation. Uh, so we, we did the overall analysis. But I could, uh, just like Brian said, uh, usually the responses between strength sports or power and endurance performance, they're kind of similar. So we expect this, the, this results to be extrapolated to any practice. So we could, we could say that endurance, that we can actually extrapolate these for, for an endurance athletes. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And so I guess going to the headline now, what effects did you find from genetic variants in terms of how caffeine affects performance? So I guess, yeah, endurance performance specifically. Yeah, so what we found, getting ahead in the subject a bit, 
we did find a, a, a rather large difference in the overall analysis. We, we call it effect size. It's a measure of uh, how big the difference is between uh, not having caffeine and having caffeine. And we found an effect size of uh, 0.3 for the fast metabolizers. It's still a small effect, but if you're thinking of sports, even a small effect is a, is a big difference, especially in high level sports. So we found this 0.3, we call it a small effect. And when we're talking about the intermediate metabolizers, we found 0.16. So it's a very small effect in this case, also positive. So both of them have benefits when they take caffeine. But the, for the small met metabolizers, on the other hand, though, they overall, we found a negative result. Also a small, uh, small effect size, 0.22. But when uh, overall, when we were looking at all the slow metabolizers, we saw actually a reduction in performance. So they performed worse when they had caffeine, which was uh, yeah, a bit surprising when we were running the analysis. Yep. And so, yeah, I guess leading on to that then, do these findings imply uh, that some athletes, like your slow metabolizers, <laughs> that some athletes shouldn't use caffeine at all or that the recommended dose and timing of caffeine for athletes should perhaps be adjusted based on someone's genetic variant? Well, yeah, that's, that's one of the things that I found most interesting when we were doing the analysis. We actually were able to gather the dosage that each and every one of these studies uh, used and also the timing between when the athletes were supplemented and the onset of exercise. So we, we saw that dosage and timing affect mainly these low metabolizers. So that's exactly the, the, the point. They will benefit in higher doses and also if they wait a bit longer between when they supplement and when they, when they do exercise. So there's no reason for panic. <laughs> no one should panic right now. Everyone should probably continue to, to take caffeine. But for these 10% of the population specifically, maybe if they take a, 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 a larger dose, maybe closer to six, which as Brian said, is if you go a bit over six, it's a bit risky. You have side effects. You may have anxiety. You may have a few other problems with caffeine consumption. And if you wait just a bit longer, so instead of waiting 60 minutes, which is the standard right now, just if you wait a bit longer, maybe 90 to 120 minutes, you will also have benefits from supplementation. So no reason for panic. Mm, yeah, no, no, that's good to know. I thought they had to wipe it out altogether. So one of the things we consider in a meta-analysis is called publication bias. So where there's a chance sometimes that mostly positive study findings are published and then there's a bunch of studies that showed no effect but never actually made it to publication. So they're probably gathering dust somewhere in labs around the world. Did you find any evidence of publication bias in your studies? Yeah, of publication bias uh, itself, no, we, we didn't. We did find risk of bias from other sources from inadequate blinding of the participants, for instance, because when, you, when you're participating in a research, you don't know what you're taking at that moment. Not, not, neither should the researcher that is giving you that intervention at the moment, or if the participants were familiarized to the exercise protocol, which is very important. If, for instance, you are a, a cyclist and someone asks you to, to do a bench press for the first time, and you, you count that trial of a bench press as uh, the main trial, maybe that cyclist will not perform as well as he could. So he should be familiarized. So there are a few other sources of bias that we did find. And overall, 
that was in our analysis, most of the studies had a moderate to high risk of bias. So this is also something to look at. Although there was no publication bias, there was bias from uh, different sources in these studies. And Brian, I guess, yeah, the other thing that is looked at for certain types of studies are other potential causes of, of bias, which include commercial conflicts of interest in study findings. And I know in this area, a lot of the studies are run by or they're funded by companies that provide genetic testing services. So did you find that this had an effect on the results at all? Yes, this is a, a tricky one to answer, I guess. But it's, it's one we wanted to, to get into. The short answer to your question is yes, this did influence the results. So what we did was, or what Gabrielle did, was separated studies that reported conflicts of interest and those that didn't. And so six of the included studies in the analysis had reported conflicts of interest. Five of those had authors, well, declared one or more authors, who were shareholders of genetic profiling companies. And the other one had authors who, who I believe, were advisor for a, for a supplement company. So once we reanalyzed the data after the exclusion of studies declaring reported conflicts of interest, all of a sudden we see no effect in any of these comparisons. So in other words, no influence of genotype was now evident on exercise performance. So almost from having an effect to, oh, now all of a sudden kind of everybody responds, you know, suggests that these studies with a reported conflict of interest did have quite a strong influence on our results. However, I, I, I do think it's important to temper some statements, I guess. You know, this doesn't necessarily translate into, oh, look at what these awful supplement genotype companies are doing and they're manipulating data, you know, nothing of the like. That's that's nothing. Uh, that's not what we're implying here. And in fact, you know, a lot of our research, if you were to look at most of our studies on beta alanine, for example, most of those have similar reported conflicts of interest because we've received grants from companies who have who who provide these supplements or sell these supplements. You know, we don't allow any of these companies to dictate anything, have input onto studies. We publish whether results are positive, negative, or neutral. But if we were to perform a similar meta-analysis with these data, then our data would have a reported conflict of interest as well. So I think that's that's important to say. And, and actually what Gabrielle mentioned there in the, the risk of bias, actually most of the studies who had uh, reported conflicts of interest were also studies that had a high risk of bias. And so, as he mentioned, sort of in, in a few of those in particular, they had no familiarization of the exercise protocol. So, you know, Gabrielle, spot on there. If, if you're asking somebody who's never gotten on, never done a 10 kilometer time trial to just go and do one, here's some, you know, after caffeine or after placebo, the next time they come along, they're potentially going to improve, not because of any of the intervention, but because of a learning effect. So a familiarization is something we find particularly important in our in our lab, that we try to do at least one or two prior to the main sessions. And so when you look at these studies, again, that do have reported conflicts of interest, they're generally the studies that have maybe a bit of a low 
quality study design and that they didn't familiarize their participants to the exercise protocol. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like it could just as easily have been the study design rather than the actual funding that's of made course. that result the way it was. Yeah. 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 Okay. So Gabriel, I guess finishing up with the practical implications of this now, what are the sort of the key messages that you want runners, cyclists or triathletes to know in terms of, you know, whether they would benefit or not from genetic testing if it was available to them and, and was affordable? Do you think they should go and get it? And if so, would this alter, I guess, the recommendations you make around maybe caffeine dose and timing? Well, if, if it's really accessible for them, I would say go for it. We know, like, so by mature cyclists start to reduce maybe 20 grams of their equipment. They might, you know, pay a, a huge amount of money just to, to improve a bit. But yeah, if it's accessible, definitely go for it. Although it would be really only relevant if you are low metabolizer in this case. And then if you're this 10% of the population that might be affected, then yeah, ideally you would just literally get a higher dose or wait a bit longer before you start exercise between supplementation. But yeah, if it's accessible, if it's really accessible, go for it. Although for most, most of the people I would, I would not recommend still. Yeah. So it sounds like basically if you're in the 90% of the population that are the, the fast or intermediate metabolizers, all those recommendations that Brian said at the start around the dose and the timing would, would still be applicable it's only if you identify yourself in that 10 percent that are the slow metabolizers that maybe you would alter that in terms of higher dose take it earlier on before exercise yeah precisely and when we did the regression we saw that the fast metabolizers and the intermediate they respond to any dosage and any time point so for them it's really not relevant yeah so for the the 10 percent yeah definitely yeah okay so if you don't have that money Maybe you could just try out your recommendation where they, you know, take that dose much before they're going to start exercise and then potentially increase that dose to see if they respond better. Yeah, yeah, definitely. You could usually test in your in your training sessions, try 60 minutes. If it doesn't work for you, maybe try a 90 and improve the time, increase the time during your training sessions. And it's the same for the dosage. Start with a lower dose of three and then increase it over time so you can see if you really respond in higher dosages or not yeah mm-hmm. yeah and that was actually giving me my follow-up question to that is you mentioned obviously the slow metabolizers needing to have it earlier to get sort of the beneficial effect how much earlier is that are we talking you know two hours before instead of one or are you talking like three or four hours before exercise yeah i would say between 90 and 120 minutes that would be my the recommendation based on our results. Yeah. yeah, cool. And Brian, have you seen anecdotally, like we were talking about before, you know, people sort of saying, well, I don't feel like I'm getting the benefit from caffeine. Maybe I'm a slow metabolizer. Have you seen anecdotally in the lab over, over your years of, of working in this area that people can kind of self-identify that? Can they kind of figure that out for themselves in terms of, oh, I'm taking caffeine and I don't think it's really working like is it that obvious or is it too subtle to really be consciously aware of do you think yeah i think i think you're spot on with the latter i i think most people most people probably say they respond to caffeine you know most people especially you know we're in a lab in brazil where people love their coffee so most Mm -hmm. people will have some form of caffeine even if not specifically supplementing they're having that 
cup of coffee or that espresso before before their workout, maybe without even thinking that it's going to impact potentially their training session. But I highly doubt, and, and anecdotally, yeah, I haven't come across anybody who said to me, hmm, I'm not too sure if I respond or not to caffeine. I wonder if, no. So I think it, I think it's likely mm. too, too subtle. Yeah, yeah, okay. And just to finish up with, I guess, in terms of plans to follow up from this, obviously, you know, Gabriel was saying before that this work was done, you know, probably over a year ago now. And you mentioned before that you're doing some more work in this area with with your own study. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, Gabriel's thesis, so I'm, he's probably shuddering as I say that word, is based is uh, is based upon a large large body a large study that he collected data for over the past few years, and obviously everybody encountered difficulties due, during COVID, which only uh, served to sort of delay that a little bit but yeah we've we've been working on a few studies on this over the past few years and and gabrielle almost predicted the future with this timing stuff as well and we've currently got a study going on with caffeine timing and, and genotypes so there's there's still a few bits and bobs to analyze but there'll be some some good data hopefully coming out with from from gabrielle's thesis over the next next couple of years i hope yeah awesome Perfect. All right. Well, we are going to finish up now with our bonus round. And I know, Brian, you've done this before, but I'm going to hand over to Steph and she's going to finish it off. Okay. So, Brian, last time you were on the podcast, which was going back to August 22, you mentioned that the sport you wanted to try was golf. Have you managed to play around or get to the driving range in the years since you were you were on? Uh, I wish the answer to this was yes, but it's not. No, and and, and the worst part is, you know, I've, I've mentioned it so often since. And another PhD student of mine, Felipe, he he goes out there all the time and and sends me photos of him. And so I still haven't gone. I promise you, if you ever call me back for the third visit, I'll 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 have done it by then. <laughs> All right, that's your. That's what will make you accountable. We'll, we'll set a date and, and you'll get it done. <laughs> Perfect. Gabrielle, what's a, a sport you've always wanted to, to try but haven't yet had the chance? Are you going to go out and hit the golf course with Brian or, or there's something else that's getting you fancy? Yeah, I think mine is a bit more extreme than Brian's. I've been fencing some outdoors climbing for a while, actually. I've been climbing indoors for some time and always wanted to do mountain climbing but it's difficult to find climbing partners. And it's also, at least in Brazil, it's not really a cheap sport. So maybe in the future, I'll, I'll try some mountain climbing. Yep, <laughs> mm, yep. Yeah, yeah. yeah a PhD budget isn't all that generous, is it, for extra expenses? <laughs> yeah, yeah. A scholarship is usually not the best. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so, Brian, your your favorite sporting moment of two thousand and twenty three so far? That's 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 a difficult one because I'm a I'm a Manchester United fan, and so it's been a pretty grim year with Manchester City winning the treble. But I'm still gonna go with Manchester United winning the the smallest the 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 least important cup of the season. But back in February, I think it was, we won the the League Cup against Newcastle two 0 our first silverware in five years. So I was I was pretty pleased with that. Yep. 
<laughs> nice. And Gabrielle, what about yours? Yeah, that's difficult for me for a different reason. I have been completely disconnected of watching any types of sports. My thesis, thanks Brian, is taking all, all of my time. So, but I, I remember uh, this this moment that we have a few uh, cyclists in our group, and uh, Leo, our time trial that happened during Tour de France, that I probably mispronounced his name, Jonas Vingegaard, did all like almost two minutes to the second place. So that was uh, pretty astonishing for me. I ended up watching the the news covers for that but like yeah completely disconnected myself <laughs> i was gonna say steph you can relate to that last year or year before yeah 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 with not having much time for, yeah. for watching sport yeah yeah exactly <laughs> yeah my my mileage my running mileage went down so brian what's been the most interesting new sports nutrition research that you've read this year other than Gabrielle's and of course your own. Yeah, I, I like that question because it it kind of insinuates that that your own research is fantastic and your your own <laughs> favorite. Course. So it's a it's a good question. It it's it's a tough one I find because I'm not I'm not usually one of these people. You know, so sometimes I see people talking about oh I remember reading this classic paper and it completely changed my perception of science and I, this is what got me into research and I, and I kind of just fell into research and I love it absolutely adore it but I've never really had that with a paper mm-hmm. but I have I, I am watching with interest the the stuff on ketone supplementation because I think recently there was another paper that showed that it actually worsened 20 kilometer I think it was time trial performance I think that was from Luke van Loon's lab in in Holland so again, this this what was purported as one of the bigger mm. new supplements that would, uh, you know, mm. really improve endurance exercise performance. But yet another study showing that actually it might not be that positive. So I'm interested to see where where that goes. Yeah, and Gabrielle, what what about you? Anything besides caffeine? Yeah, I'm more connected to technology, and we've been to the ACSM this year, and I found too that. I read actually two posters in the poster sections, which were amazing, actually. One of about a gadget, it was a t-shirt that would measure your respiratory frequency, would measure your heart rate. That was pretty amazing for me. I mean, it was the first time I was hearing about that. And it was climbing as well. So that was pretty nice. And the other one is an AI tool that would analyze your body fat percentage just by providing a few pictures of yourself. So this one is also from Brazilian researchers. Not necessarily on sports nutrition, but yeah, this probably are the two I can remember. Mm. Yeah, yeah, very interesting. And finally, either of you, recruiting for, for any studies at the moment that you would like to put a shameless plug on here for? Oh, yeah, sure. Uh, we are uh, actually starting to run right now this study on the impacts of timing and genotypes on uh, on exercise. Uh, we're about to start data collection here in Sao Paulo. And hopefully in the next few months, our colleague Greek, he will help us out in this project. And that's the one we're actually looking for participants right now. But not necessarily cyclists, but any any sorts of sports. We usually, we're measuring sprint performance. So any sport will be nice. Awesome. So anyone in Sao Paulo who's interested in some caffeine research we'll put the contact details in the show notes so you can get in touch with gabrielle and brian and get involved with that research that'd be awesome all right 
thank you guys so much for coming on the podcast. It's been great to, to chat to you both. Good to see you again, Brian, and, and great to meet you, Gabrielle. And I think really good that there's you know, a nice, I think, clear message that comes from this. You know, it's a, one of those areas that, as I think you said earlier, Brian, you know, a new study comes out and it graves, creates this great clickbaity headline of, you know, study showed X. Um, but it's nice when you can kind of bring all of that together with a bit of a more nuanced approach and then, you know, come up with a practical recommendation off the back of that. So that that's really great to see. And, and hopefully with you know, your study, Gabrielle, with you know, adding to this this data set in more detail, you know, we'll get even more information about that and, and particularly around that timing. So thanks so much for both being on the podcast. Thanks for having us. Thanks for inviting. Awesome. Thank you very much, Gabrielle and Brian. Good to, to know that I, I think that caffeine is of benefit to, to myself and hopefully the listeners aren't too disappointed with those responses because I think we've come to the answer that maybe even if we're a slow metabolizer, it's actually we can still potentially benefit from it. So I'll, I'll let Alan summarise those key messages. Cool. Yeah, no, you're spot on there, Steph. So I guess our question was, you know, do I need to change the the dose or the timing of my caffeine based on my genetics? And we're talking about particularly this cytochrome P451A2 enzyme or CYP1A2. And this enzyme is responsible for metabolizing about 95% of all the caffeine that comes into our system into its more excretable metabolites, so bits and pieces that the body can get rid of. And there's a variation in this between people and it's it's just one change and so you end up with these three different variations aas which are the fast metabolizers acs which are the intermediate metabolizers and ccs which are the slow metabolizers of caffeine now as gabrielle mentioned the vast majority of the population will fall into either the fast or the intermediate metabolizers about 90 percent of the population 45 percent each and then only about 10 percent of the population seem to be these slow metabolizers this cc combination now several studies have presented evidence that show a greater performance benefit of caffeine for the fast and the intermediate metabolizers compared to the slow metabolizers so there is this potential that maybe the slow metabolizers don't benefit from caffeine supplementation or in fact some of the studies suggest they actually do worse with that so when you pull all that together into this meta-analysis which is what gabriel did he found that the slow metabolizers were found to have a detrimental effect from caffeine or what we call an ergolytic effect. However, there was you know, some potential causes of bias in a lot of those studies, so we can't be absolutely confident in that finding. But I guess what was interesting when he sort of delved into this a little bit further was the fact that the slow metabolizers may simply need a higher dose of caffeine. So beyond the kind of typically recommended three milligrams per kilo of body weight, maybe up to six milligrams per kilo and also taking it earlier during exercise. So rather than an hour before exercise, maybe taking it one and a half to two hours before exercise to get the same benefit to what the intermediate and fast metabolizers would get. Now, if you don't know about this, and Brian said, you know, you're not going to be able to tell this you know, anecdotally. It's not going to be obvious to you which variant you are. You're not going to be able to take a caffeine supplement and, and be able to go, oh, yeah, I'm a slow metabolizer. I can feel it kind of thing. It's it's not that clear cut and it's not that obvious. So the only way you're really going to know that is to do genetic testing. And that is available in some countries, probably not all. 
and it's certainly not cheap, although, as we said, here in Australia, it's, it's certainly not outrageous, but in some countries it probably is. But for those who really want to leave absolutely no stone unturned with their performance and have the disposable income to spend on it, it may be a worthwhile investment, particularly if you're at that sort of very high level of sport and you're trying to get absolutely every inch out of what you're doing. Awesome. Awesome. So yeah, hopefully our listeners found that beneficial. And I know our, actually a lot of our guests, when we were asking them, what's, you know, the one thing that they can't go without, that was caffeine. So hopefully they're listening to this as well and and find it beneficial. So just going now to our next episode, Al, we're episode 67. Yep. Yep. So we are going to come back to what we were originally going to do this time around. So we're going to have a look at fueling for double session days. So yeah, what do you do for, you know, a lot of particularly triathletes out there, but people in other sports as well that are, you know, doing a training session in the morning, then heading off to work or doing something else, uni or whatever, and then having to to back up in the afternoon again. And how do you kind of manage that from a nutrition point of view, both in terms of, you know, the recovery and the fueling aspect, but also, you know, managing potentially things like gut issues that might be more common in the afternoon because you've had a few meals in the hours beforehand, as opposed to being in bed asleep in the hours beforehand. So yeah, it'll be interesting to, to sort of unpack that and have a look at it. It's one of those more practical questions, but I think it's an important one for quite a lot of people out there. Yeah. And so just a a reminder that if you do have a question that you would like answered on the podcast, you can contact us at the Long Munch on Instagram, Facebook or Twitter, otherwise known as X. Uh, And thank you for those questions that have been coming through. We, We do appreciate them. Thank you also to the people who have left ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. If you do listen on one of these platforms and have a few seconds or so to to spare, we'd love it if you could leave a quick rating or review. And those that do leave a review on Apple Podcasts will go into a draw to win a copy of our ebook when it's published. And remember also that there's now 65 previous questions we've already answered. So if you're new to the podcast, welcome. You might like to check out the back catalogue to see if there's something there that will be helpful to you. Most podcast apps only show you the last few episodes, but if you click back, you'll find the rest of them going back to November 2020. And if you would like to be notified every time a new episode is available, you can hit subscribe on the podcast app that you are listening to this on. And if your friends are asking about a particular nutrition issue for their training or the racing and you've heard it on the podcast, you might like to let them know. If you haven't heard it on the podcast and you think it's kind of a a good question or you can't be bothered to answer it for them and you'd like us to, please send them through. But otherwise, as always, we will love and leave you and, and see you in a couple of weeks. See you then.